I want to invite you to turn to Psalm 110. Our text today is located in just one verse, Psalm 110, verse 4. If I were to sum up the aim and the purpose of this series of sermons that we've chosen for the Advent season, there'd probably be no better explanation than Jesus' own prayer in John 17, one where he, he prays, Father, glorify your Son, that your Son may glorify you. That, that's the purpose. That's our purpose in a nutshell. Oh, God, just please reveal the wonders, reveal the wisdom, reveal the treasures, reveal the majestic mountain peaks that that are visible nowhere else and in no one else but in your son. And do it, do it, so that in and through your son, you, oh God, may be praised and prized and loved and glorified for all that you are. that's, That's a lofty thing. But loved ones, there is nothing, there is nothing else in all the world that comes close to capturing God's aim and purpose for the holiday that we call Christmas. This is my son. And this son, Christ Jesus, is the object. He's the object of God's affection, God's delight, God's pleasure, God's joy is in him. So see him. Slow down and think about him. Wrap your heads around him so that your hearts might be captured by him. Otherwise, Christmas is in vain. And so we've entitled this Advent series, This is My Son. And on this third Sunday of Advent, I want to call your attention to one verse. Actually, just one sentence in one verse. And so if you're able as an expression of regard for God's word. Let's stand together. Listen carefully. I'm going to read all of Psalm 110 and pause when we get to the, the key phrase. Psalm 110 is a psalm of David. That's the ascription over the top of it. The Lord says to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. And from the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. And, and this is our text. This is, this is the key sentence. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. This is God's word. May he be glorified in it. May he strengthen, build his church through it. Let's pray. 
It is an awesome thing for us to hear your voice, to hear you communicate yourself to us. It's an awesome thing, Father, for you to put forward your Son in such a way that we we might behold him and love him. And it's an awesome thing that by your Holy Spirit, we might actually see and sense and know that you would apply all of the glorious realities of who you have shown yourself to be in the Son to our lives. That's what we're looking for you to do again today. Glorify your Son so that the Son in us, through us, might glorify you. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Maybe seated. <clears throat> it seems like it's been a month of saying this, but you just need to know I feel way better than I sound. <laughs> if there's one thing everyone in this room needs, it is a priest. Perhaps more than anything, what we all need today and every day is a priest. Now, that might very well be the last thing you expected to hear from an ordained Baptist, essentially reformed evangelical pastor, but it's just another little surprise for you on the ninth anniversary of Emmaus Road Church. I'm not kidding, however. What we need is a priest. No, what we, what we really need is a high priest. Actually, what we need more than anything else is a great high priest. And that which we all need most is the very thing that God has so kindly, and wisely, and generously provided. The Son whom God the Father has put forward whose birth we celebrate at Christmas, is Jesus, God's priestly son. It was my wife who introduced me to, I'm going I'm to just call him Mr. B. You never know who's watching these things. Um, Mr. B. And, and both Mr. B and his wife were, were bright outgoing, highly educated, just a very attractive couple, young professionals who had recently relocated to the United States from the Middle East. Mr. B identified himself as a liberal Muslim. And in our very first conversation, things, things led to me walking Mr. B through this little tract entitled, How Good Are You? The point of this tract is to show that we all by nature, by choice, by moral, spiritual inability are hopelessly separated from God. God created us to experience the incomparable joy of soul-satisfying fellowship and communion with him. Nothing makes God happier than sharing with us the pleasure of his nearness But instead of giving thanks to God and humbly submitting to his wise and loving rule over our lives, we've we've all sought to exalt ourselves above him. 
by doing our own thing, living according to our own wisdom and purpose. We have, we've all broken countless times either the letter or the spirit of each and every one of the Ten Commandments. And the result of that is separation, relational distance. For some, that distance is expressed through ambivalence, ho-hum toward God. For others, it's hard thoughts and maybe an, an icy glare at God. For others, it's just outright anger and cursing and hostility toward God. But, but the end is relo- relational brokenness. And that's where the world is at in relationship to God along, along with an unwillingness to, to take any responsibility for it. And, and further, any attempt to reconcile with God on our terms, like trying to straighten ourselves out and you know, be a better person and whatnot, it's impossible. <laughs> it's impossible. It's like trying to jump. This is the point of this little tract. It's like trying to jump across the Grand Canyon. So, some might be able to jump a little bit further than others, but nobody's going to make it. Now, unlike many people today who just don't care, they're alienated from God, and it just doesn't even matter. It was clear that for Mr. B, he did care. He cared. It, it, it mattered to him that he was accepted by God, and so he, he, was, he was religious. He was religious about the tenets of, of Islam. He, he prayed, he fasted, he, he, and he seemed to find remarkable assurance that everything was just great between him and God. And he says to me, I, I know, I know that God loves me. I, I'm sure that he accepts me just the way I am. I'm, I'm absolutely sure of it. I said, absolutely sure? He said, Oh, yes, absolutely. And then I asked, well, well, how is it that you are so certain that God loves you and accepts you the way you are? Oh, oh that's easy. This is, this is exactly what he said next. I know that God loves me because I won the lottery twice. <laughs> you won the lottery twice <laughs> he says yes twice it was a miracle I put the track back in my pocket <laughs> I like wasn't quite sure what to say but what's going through my mind is Mr. B and his wife they're, they're living like they're living like church mice in the spare bedroom of his cousin. Mr. B is working in the back room at TJ Maxx, breaking down shipping boxes. So when my curiosity rather overwhelmed my, my uh, social sensitivities, I, I finally said, do you mind if I ask, what exactly did you win in the lottery? He just brightens up and he says, an exit visa. I want an exit visa. 
millions of people are desperate to leave my home country. And only a handful each year are granted an exit visa, and they're chosen by lottery. I was one of millions who applied, and I won. It was a miracle. But when I went to claim my exit visa, there was this discrepancy in the spelling of my name on the birth certificate and my lottery ticket. One letter was off. They voided the whole thing. My, my one in a millions chance to leave the country. Done. I was crushed. But I applied for the lottery again the next year. And I won again. It was a miracle. I know that God loves me and accepts me just the way I am. We're all a little bit like Mr. B. If things are going smooth and we're blessed with favor and good fortune, we feel like God's for us, feel close, tempted probably to diminish the seriousness of our countless sins because it sure seems like he's, he's happy with us. Oh, but if the winds of providence are blowing against us, and our failures are amplified. It seems like God may be giving us a cold shoulder. We perceive an icy glare. It seems like he's, he's not talking to us. We feel tension. And what we forget, but perhaps by God's grace, realizes that even the very best, the very best we can offer is not enough to get us closer to God. It's not because of works of righteousness that we've done that the sweet fellowship we were created to enjoy is restored. Rather, it's on account of his mercy that he saves he forgives, he redeems, he draws us near. What we need is a priest. No, what we really need is a high priest. Actually, what we need the most is, more than anything, is a great high priest to bring us to God. Now, look at the little phrase embedded in Psalm 110, verse 4. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Who is you? Who's being addressed here? <clears throat> we know that King David is the composer of this psalm. The inscription over Psalm 110 says, A Psalm of David. Jesus himself ascribes Psalm 110 to David. Mark chapter 12, verse 35, it says, As Jesus taught in the temple, he said, David himself in the Holy Spirit declared, and, and here's a quotation reference to Psalm 110, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord. So whoever you is in Psalm 110, we know he's not David. 
Rather, he is David's Lord, and he sits at Yahweh's right hand. Psalm 110, verse 1. The Lord, all caps, remember this? Yahweh. Yahweh says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. So Yahweh someday will make this man's adversaries a footstool. God's going God's to make this man's enemies as threatening as a lazy boy, Ottoman. And further, Yahweh is extending this, he's extending his own rule and reign and authority through the rule of this man. Verse 2, the Lord, again all caps, Yahweh, sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter, rule in the midst of your enemies. So whoever he is, he wields a sword and he commands an army of willing, yielded servants who are clothed in holiness. Verse 3. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. And this Lord, unlike others, whose life and power come and go, pass like a morning cloud. He, he actually owns. This Lord owns the dew of his youth. Verse 3. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. So who is he? This Lord over David. Who is this Lord of whom Yahweh attributes such power and authority? Who is he? And again, Jesus himself leaves little doubt because he again quotes Psalm 110 in Matthew chapter 22, verse 41. Jesus asked them a question. What do you think about the Christ? David in the spirit calls him, the Christ, Lord, saying, and here's the quote of Psalm 110, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. You see it? According to Jesus, the you of Psalm 110 verse 4 is Jesus. The one addressing the Lord Jesus in 100, Psalm 110 is Yahweh, the Lord God Almighty. Now, this might not seem like that big of a deal, but loved ones, think about this. We are listening in on divine communication from God the Father to God the Son. A, a curtain's being pulled back in the heavenly realm. We're in a holy place and we hear these intimate and personal words. You. You. Let me tell you something about you. Something so 
crucial and so glorious about me and you, about us. You, we're, we're, we're gonna show the world something high. We're going to show the world, no, it's, it's higher than high. We're gonna show the world the summit, the pinnacle of our glory. We're gonna do something that the world knows not of. We're gonna reveal something the world has never seen. We're gonna put on display mercy. We're gonna show the world what it looks like to restore broken relationships. We're going to show the world what it looks like to be holy and just. We're going to show the world what it looks like to be righteous and merciful and put away wrath. We're going to, we're going to show the world what it looks like to, to make peace and uphold justice and be righteous. We're gonna show the world what it looks like to tear down division and separation and alienation without compromising God's holy will. We're going to show the world what it looks like to experience real communion. And listen, my son, the locust is all you. You, my dearly loved son, you, my only begotten son, it's you. You alone, you alone are the access to communion with me, to fellowship with me, to relationship with me, to eternal pleasure in me. It's you. Loved ones, that's who you is in Psalm 110 verse 4. Now the verse goes on to say, you are a priest. <laughs> Jesus is a priest. And a priest is what we all need. And so what is it that priests do that we so desperately need? According to the Old Testament, what priests mainly did was the work of mediation and intercession. As a mediator, the priest is he's the go-between, representing the people to God and representing God to the people. And this, this mediation was accomplished through the offering of a sacrifice on another's behalf. The sacrifice needed to be unblemished, free from any defect, free from disease. As the ritual went, the, it included laying a hand on this victim's head. That, that was a symbol of transferring, or, or we, we like to use that theological word, imputing. Imputing of the sinner's guilt onto this animal sacrifice. And then would come this Shedding of blood, this death of the sacrifice by the hand of the one it represented. And, and so it was the death of this sacrifice is recognized to be caused by the offender. And the priest, in his role, as he's appointed as a mediator. That is, this priest is responsible for then transferring all of that blood taking all the blood and then taking the blood into the holy place and 
sprinkling the blood on this, what was known as the mercy seat, while he was offering prayer on behalf of the people. And, and the thing was, that, that caused everybody to, have, it was a very pensive moment. If God rejected the offering of the blood, the, the priest himself and the people could very well be consumed. And so you can understand then the relief and the joy in the people when the priest reappeared from the holy place. Is he dead? Ah, no, he's alive. Yes, hallelujah. That means, our, that means our sacrifice. The priest is alive. That means our sacrifice has been accepted. God has accepted the blood as atonement, assuring the people that his holy wrath had been set aside. Now, what, what God is saying to the Son in Psalm 110 verse 4 is that Jesus has been appointed to function as a priest. Verse 4, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest. Jesus is the mediator who's been assigned to offer. No, no, actually even more to be a sacrifice to atone for all that we've done that has offended God. This means that God the Father himself has taken the initiative and made an unbreakable oath to accomplish what is impossible for us to do ourselves. Paul writes in Colossians chapter 1, verse 21, and you who once were alienated, hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he, God, has now reconciled in his body of flesh, by his death, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. You see, it's our sins that have caused the breach. And God is the offended party. And God is the one who could justly, righteously, fairly distance himself from us. But for the sake of the praise of his matchless mercy, he reaches out to us and he puts forward a great high priest whose name is love. And it's by the power of his grace alone that, that our ambivalent, who cares, or our hostile disposition is subdued and made willing to turn and trust and respond. Look at verse 3. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in clothed with holy garments. See, Jesus is no ordinary priest. According to verse 4, God the Father says, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. What is a Melchizedek? And what does it mean for Jesus to be a priest after his order? Melchizedek is introduced in Genesis 14 where he appears rather briefly and without a lot of explanation. But, but the book of Hebrews provides us with a little commentary and explanation 
more than a little commentary and explanation about Melchizedek. Here we learn that Melchizedek is both a king and a priest. Hebrews chapter 7, verse 1. The Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God. Now that's noteworthy because the Old Testament priests that were of Aaron's line and Levi, they were priests. But this priest is also a king. The, the offices of king and priest were, were kept strictly separate in the Old Testament. It's kind of like in our time, the separation of power between the executive, legislative, judicial branches of our government. But, but here's a guy, here's a man who combines these vital offices of king and priest. The writer of Hebrews also registers the meaning of Melchizedek's name in his title. Hebrews chapter 7 verse 2. He, that is Melchizedek, is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness. And then he's also king of Salem. That is, king of peace. That tells you something, right? Here's a man. Here's a man who, according to Genesis 14, he, he lived at a time in history among the most depraved people group on the planet. The Canaanites, they just produced the most gross expressions of immorality. And yet, here's, here's a man who, who dwelt among them and whose kingly rule was, was marked by righteousness and peace. It's amazing. Hebrews chapter 7 verse 3 says something more. <laughs> he is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues as a priest forever. Nobody knew where he came from. One commentator writes, the silence of the Old Testament scriptures concerning his parentage was, it has a designed significance. The entire omission was ordered by the Holy Spirit in order to present a perfect type of the Lord Jesus. The, the, the more we discover about Melchizedek, the more we see how wonderfully he, he depicts, foreshadows Jesus, God's priestly son. You, Lord Jesus, are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. You're just the priest we need. Because Jesus is a sovereign priest. He is both king and priest. And as a mediator who is king and priest, he mediates a whole salvation, not just part. After having offered the sacrifice of his own blood shed on the cross for the atonement for our sins, he also possesses the royal power, 
the sovereign power to subdue the heart of the worst of sinners and governs his kingdom and defends his people from every enemy. Hebrews chapter 7 verse 25 says he is able to save to the uttermost. None can thwart his saving purpose. He's also a sinless priest. He does more than offer an unblemished, unstained, tainted sacrifice. He is the unblemished sacrifice. He is the true king of righteousness. It was his spotless holiness lived out amongst our depravity that was necessary and essential, an essential condition for such a great reconciliation. Hebrews chapter 7 verses 26 and 27. It was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest. Holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners and exalted above the heavens. He has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily. First for his own sins and then for those of the people. Since he did this once for all when he offered himself up. Which makes Jesus a sufficient priest. He is the only one that ever made full, adequate atonement for sin. Any priest other than Christ needed to, he needed the same personal atonement for his sin just like the rest of the people. Any sacrifice other than Christ required repetition. Over and over and over. But Jesus has taken away the sins of redeemed sinners by one act. His finished work on the cross. And as he brought the blood, his own blood, to the mercy seat of God and entered that most holy of places. And everybody's wondering, will he ever come out alive? He burst forth from the grave signifying that God has indeed accepted his sacrifice once for all, sufficient to attain, atone for all our sins, past, present, and future. According to the writer of Hebrews, we've been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all, Every priest stands daily at his service offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. Sounds so much like Psalm 110. For by a single offering... He has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And if that's not enough, Jesus is a steadfast priest. God God did not only promise that Jesus would be a priest, he didn't ordain him as a priest for a while. (laughs) Rather, God, that is God, Yahweh himself says in Psalm 110 verse 4, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. 
Loved ones, Jesus is interceding today. He stands before the Father today. He stands before the Father presenting his wounds. And he pleads for us. Father, don't, don't condemn them. See, I suffered for them. I died for them. He intercedes in this moment. And when we sin, we, we can know that we have an enduring great high priest who laid down his life for us. His sinless life offered to God on our behalf. It is the ground of our salvation. His enduring eternal priestly intercession before the throne of God. It is our hope and confidence that God will never, ever, ever say, depart from me, I never knew you. Charles Spurgeon writes, it must be a solemn and sure matter which leads the eternal to swear and with him an oath fixes and settles the decree forever. But in this case, as if to make assurance a thousand times sure it is added and will not repent, will not change his mind. If his priesthood could be revoked and his authority removed, it would be the end of all hope and life for the people who he loves. But this sure rock is the basis of all our security and will stand through all eternity. You have a priest. You have a great high priest who's sovereign, sinless, sufficient, and steadfast. Let's pray. Father, for the, the ones who have never never enjoyed communion with you, sweet pleasure in relationship with you. The joy, the spiritual joys of being accepted of a, of a life-giving relationship with you. Oh Lord, for the sake of the glory of your sovereign grace, would you command in your day of power, by your power, make them willing to turn and look to you and trust you and respond to you, follow you, give life, give willingness, cause them to will and to act according to your good purpose. And for each one, Lord, who on some days are ambivalent towards you, some days think hard thoughts towards you, some days unsure where they stand with you, would you assure them again today 
of such a great high priest who has paid for all their sins and is interceding and pleading their innocence because of you on their behalf. In Jesus' name, amen.